2: Welcome! This is the 22nd episode of Kicking the Kairiarchy, your UK-based intersectional feminist podcast series. Let's refresh. Kairiarchy is kind of like patriarchy, but looks at oppression beyond just gender. Right, because society oppresses individuals not just on the basis of gender, but also sexual orientation, class, disability, mental health, pretty much everything and we'd like to dismantle that by kicking it basically with your headphones earphones or speakers however you're listening to this episode exactly last month we talked about the topic of incarceration with guests from immigration detention centers prisons and the family they've left behind so a big thank you to all three of our guests without whom we couldn't have done this episode justice We're all about the big topics here, breaking them down by platforming three voices that challenge mainstream media. And guess what? It's that time again, too. Let's talk living with HIV. Right. So this episode actually came out of a chance conversation I had at a feminist conference with someone from the NAS project. NAS is the sexual health charity dedicated to people experiencing better sexual health. They do this because there's a big gap in the sexual health outcomes of black, Asian, minority, ethnic communities compared to the general population. Exactly. So I met Zara, who told me that 80% of women accessing HIV care in the UK are black and Asian minority ethnic. And despite this, the stories and experiences of these women are largely absent in the HIV narrative because it focuses on white gay men. There are around 89,000 people who are living with HIV in England today, and around 12% of those are undiagnosed and don't know about their HIV infection. Also, for the first time, the overall mortality rate for people aged 15 to 59 diagnosed with HIV is about the same as the general population for the same age. So living with HIV, if you're diagnosed today, is far less likely that you would die any sooner than anyone else. Which is actually amazing. That blows my mind. Anyway, so that actually means that those living with HIV on effective treatment can't pass it on. Most people don't know this. I didn't know this. I was one of those people that thought living with HIV was an actual death sentence and that, you know, if you had it, you were going to pass it on regardless. So that's actually blown my mind. Exactly. So this leads us to the question, how is HIV an intersectional feminist issue? A very good question, Sid. So let's chat to our three guests to find out why.
1: I'm Shima Tarek. I'm a 42-year-old cisgendered female, British-Asian, HIV doctor and academic. Could you tell us a little bit more about your field of research? I've been working in HIV for about 15 years as a doctor. For the past 10 years, I've been conducting research really around the area of women in HIV here in the UK, looking at pregnancy, intimate partner violence, issues that affect trans women living with HIV... But really over the past three years most of my work has focused on HIV and the menopause and I currently run the PRIME study which is one of the largest studies internationally looking at how the menopause affects women living with HIV. Can you
2: um, explain why HIV, why you're interested in researching that?
1: So I was a kid when the iceberg adverts came out in the mid-80s and I think that had quite a profound effect on me. I remember hearing a lot about HIV, lots of scary stuff and even as a child hearing people in my family be quite stigmatising towards people living with HIV and I instinctively felt that that wasn't right and that feeling has stayed with me so I was at medical school when the first treatments for HIV began to emerge and the field changed dramatically. So I've always been drawn to it, I think medically it's very interesting but it's one of these areas of medicine which foregrounds the mix between the biological and the social, and it allows you to wear your political heart on your sleeve as a doctor, which is really important to me. Could you tell us a
2: little bit about the iceberg adverts? Because I think I can picture it in my head, but it was before my (laughs) time, I'm going to say. Can you explain what the advert
1: was? So in the mid-80s, it was clear that there was this new epidemic that people really didn't know what HIV was. We were kind of learning as we went along and actually one of the only good things that the then Conservative government in my opinion ever did was actually instigate a massive public health campaign to inform people about HIV and to this day it's still the only large national HIV campaign we've had in the United Kingdom. I mean it worked using scare tactics and there's a debate as to whether these scare tactics were a effective way of messaging but it was um icebergs um floating in a very sort of scary dark space and tombstone adverts and the catchphrase was aids don't die of ignorance and for people who remember those adverts so either as a child or if you were a gay man who is maybe sexually active at that time or maybe someone who is using drugs at that time these were adverts that were really terrifying actually
2: And your research is primarily on women and Hmm. um, living with HIV. Yet every time that we see any kind of public health campaign, I suppose, is mainly targeted towards white gay men. So can you tell us a bit about the women who live with HIV?
1: It's amazing still in 2018, when people think about HIV, I think you're right, they do predominantly associate it with white gay men. And to be fair, Gay men are still predominantly the largest group affected by HIV here in the UK. But globally, over 50% of people living with HIV are female. We often forget about that. So I think it's really important we attend to that because a lot of what we know about HIV, a lot of the policies, a lot of services are really developed for the needs of a gay man living with HIV. And that's important, but we need to remember that women living with HIV have their own needs and they're going to be different. I'm gonna do a shameless plug for a report that was launched a couple of weeks ago by the Terence Higgins Trust and also the Sophia Forum. And it's a report called um, HIV and Women Invisible No Longer. And they really show that there's huge social need amongst this group. So um, more than 50% of women living with HIV live below the poverty line. There's huge issues in terms of mental health needs that have gone unmet. Over 50% of women living with HIV have experienced violence from a partner because of their HIV status. Um, these are the things that get missed when we think about policy and we don't think about women.
2: So you touched on it before and it's something that I'd never thought about before which is the, why is HIV a social issue as well as a medical one?
1: I mean, to be honest, I think most medical conditions are social issues as well as as biological issues. I think it's easier to see it in HIV. So if you think about why people may be at risk of HIV, some of those factors that drive that risk are social factors. So poverty, gender-based violence, uh, non-consensual sex, injecting drug use, homelessness... So you can't really disentangle the social from the medical. And also, despite the fact that now HIV is a very treatable condition, and we know now that having controlled HIV virus in your blood means that you cannot transmit the virus to anybody else. However, despite all those advances, it still remains hugely socially stigmatised. And again, that's why you can't remove the social from the medical
2: Can you elaborate a little bit on the specific needs affecting women living with HIV?
1: So firstly, what they found in this report is that women living with HIV feel that their needs have been overlooked, that they've been left behind when it comes to research and when it comes to policy. For instance, we know that women living with HIV are more likely than men to be diagnosed late, Another thing that's in the news at the moment a lot is PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is treatment or tablets that you can take to prevent catching HIV. There's been pretty good uptake amongst gay men here in the UK. We're not seeing that same in women. So that tells us that the prevention strategies that we have, that we know work, we're not getting them out equally to all groups who are at risk of HIV. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done. And what kinds of people are at the most at risk of getting HIV? Do you mean generally or in terms of women? Women. That's such a good question. So I think that's partly um, why we found it so hard to know how to target pre-exposure prophylaxis because we don't really have a handle on who these women who might be at increased risk are. I mean, certainly women whose partners have HIV and their partners aren't on treatment... And I would say there's a certain aspect of trusting women to be able to make their own decisions about whether they're at risk. So there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of thinking about who the women who are most likely to be at risk and the ones who are most likely to benefit from PrEP are. And that's still a sort of big area of research at the moment. So could you tell us why researching
2: menopause and HIV is important?
1: You know what, we... We haven't really looked at it before. There's not much that's ever really been known about menopause and HIV. And that's, that's not surprising because up until recently, quite frankly, women weren't living to an age where they were going to experience menopause and also be living with HIV. But that's changing. and We're seeing women reaching their 40s, 50s, 60s. One of my oldest patients is in her 70s. And that's an amazing thing. But we still don't know much about how menopause affects this group. There are studies on HIV and ageing, there's two big studies in Europe, and it's really interesting to note that those studies overwhelmingly look at men. We don't know about the female experience of ageing. And it, that's important because women age differently, both biologically and also socially. So, um, well, the main reason I got into this work was I'd been looking after women living with HIV during pregnancy. and. I was beginning to see these women who I'd looked after in pregnancy who were getting older and getting into their 40s, and they were beginning to come to speak to me about menopause and asking me, is their menopause going to be different for them because they're living with HIV? And I went back and looked at what data might be out there and realised there really wasn't very much. I mean, there's some work that's been done in the United States suggesting that women living with HIV go through the menopause at a younger age than women without, I may have more menopausal symptoms, but that was really it. And um, I realised there was nothing in the UK, so that was one of the reasons we set up our study, the Prime Study. And I do think it's important. I think we don't talk about the menopause because we live in a culture which values youth and values, certainly in women, reproductive potential, rather than thinking about what happens to women as they get older. And, you know, Anyone who's got ovaries is going to go through the menopause. That's the fact. And I'm not the kind of doctor that sees it as a pathological condition. It's a natural transition. But actually a lot of women during the menopause are going to get symptoms. 80% of women during menopause get hot flushes. And about a quarter of those women will have symptoms that are really severe and interrupt their day-to-day lives. So this is something we need to talk about. And I'm particularly interested in... What happens when this kind of change is happening in your body and you're already living with a long-term condition that's still quite heavily stigmatised? And then you throw in ageing and menopause, which are also things that are still taboo and stigmatised. What have you
2: found in your research about women living with HIV and going through the menopause?
1: So we found really high levels of symptoms. So between 70 to 90% of women in our study report having some type of menopausal symptoms. And that could be anything from hot flushes to depression, anxiety, through to problems in terms of having sex. And I think that's something that has been particularly striking for me, is just how many women have talked about the difficulties they've had in terms of their sex lives. And again, massively taboo subject. And it's something that I think it's really important to shine a light on and to try and support people's sexual well-being throughout their lives, not just when they're young. So that's been pretty striking, this high degree of symptoms, and really seeing how these symptoms affect women's mental health during the menopause. One thing that we saw in our research is that nearly 50% of the women who participated said that they'd never received enough information about menopause before it happened to them which is such a simple thing to remedy, really. And very few women had ever taken any kind of treatment for menopause. But for some women with symptoms, treatment can be life-changing. So that could be hormone tablets or even hormone creams you put into the vagina to make sex less painful. And the fact that so few women in our study had even heard of these things, I think, was really striking. And then... Thinking particularly about HIV, many of the women that we interviewed talked about how difficult it was to be going through the menopause when you're already managing a long term condition. So, for instance, some women described difficulties in distinguishing what was happening in their bodies. So, when they started getting symptoms, thinking, well, is this menopause? Is this side effects of my treatment? Is this HIV? who should I go and talk to? Should I go and talk to my GP or should I go and talk to my HIV specialist? Should I talk to my friends? No, I don't really want to talk to my friends because maybe that will out the fact that I have HIV. So there are particular challenges about going through this transition as a woman living with HIV.
2: Does your research compare to the US studies, which said
1: that it started sooner as well, menopause? So we haven't found that. We haven't specifically looked for that, to be honest. We, we've decided to look at women aged between 45 and 60 because we wanted to get a group of women who we thought were most likely to have menopausal symptoms. So we're not really looking at the women who might be going through menopause at a younger age. I've done some work with another study here in the UK, a study called the Poppy study, which is another study of HIV and ageing, where we compared women with and without HIV and looked at their age of menopause and there wasn't any significant differences. It might be that women living with HIV go through the menopause maybe a year or so uh, younger than those without HIV but that I think medically wouldn't have a huge impact in terms of their experience.
2: So does HIV
1: have a direct impact on the menopause? We don't really know. I've got lots of um, hypotheses. (laughs) We know from studies that have been done in men that HIV can affect levels of hormones and it is not unreasonable to expect that a similar process could happen in women, although that hasn't really been looked at in detail. We don't really understand how the drugs that we use to treat HIV may interact with female hormones One thing I think I can say for sure, and again, this isn't so much biological, but I do think there's an interaction between living with HIV and managing a long-term stigmatising condition and then having a whole range of other symptoms thrown on top of that. I think it can present a challenge. Okay, so first of all, what kind of practical takeaways have you gathered from your research? So um, the main thing that we've done or the thing that I'm most proud of is that we've, we've raised awareness about menopause in women living with HIV. Um, I think it wasn't really on clinics' radars and it, it is now. As a result of our study, we've now published the first ever national guidelines on the care of women living with HIV going through the menopause, which I think is amazing because there's now national standards that clinics have to aspire to. I've been doing lots of community workshops so I go out to a lot of HIV charities and run workshops for women living with HIV talking about menopause and talking about sex as we get older I have worked with brilliant HIV information organisation called AIDSmap to produce a, a patient leaflet which can be downloaded I guess for me the main, the main take home message is well, it's exactly what the women have said that 50% haven't received enough information that's a simple thing We can get information out there. I remember early on in the research process doing a focus group and one woman, and it's really stayed with me because it's so moving. So um, she was a woman in her late 40s and she had been having menopausal symptoms for about five years and she didn't know what was happening to her and she thought she'd been living with HIV for a long time and she'd got to a point where the drugs would have stopped working and that she was going to die. And she came to our focus group, and it was the first time she realised that what she was experiencing was menopause, and it was completely normal, and loads of women in that room had exactly the same symptoms. One thing that I'd really like to do is to be able to look at finding different ways of supporting women going through the menopause when they're living with HIV. And I think one really great model is peer support, where somebody... Who has experience of a certain condition supports other people with the same condition. And it's been used widely with women living with HIV during pregnancy. And what I'd really like to do is to work with HIV charities to develop peer support for women aging with HIV. Mm. Because I think there's nothing like learning from people who've walked in your shoes. Mm. Is there anything that we should be aware of about the specific needs affecting trans women living with HIV? So I was really conscious as a researcher working with women living with HIV that I'd had a blind spot for many years, that all my work had been with cisgendered women living with HIV. And so over the past few years, I've tried to rectify that by doing more work um, looking at the needs of trans women living with HIV. I've been really lucky to work with fantastic trans activist Juno Roche who is a trans woman openly living with HIV who's actually just released an amazing book called Queer Sex. Juno held a roundtable event a couple of years ago to really look at the needs of trans women living with HIV and what the research gaps are. I mean, there's very little data on trans people living with HIV here in the UK. I think that's changing. Public Health England are definitely on the case and are beginning to start collecting statistics, so that's the first step. But there's still lots of work to be done. I've been um, collaborating with a colleague, Rusi Jaspal from De Montfort University. We've conducted some work interviewing trans women living with HIV to really try and um, understand their experiences of living with HIV whilst being trans. And what we found in our small interview study was quite high levels of social vulnerability. So workplace discrimination, women feeling that... They've needed to go into the sex industry but may not being able to negotiate condom use for a whole variety of reasons, high rates of drug use and also high rates of discrimination within the healthcare system as well. So um, it's a group of patients whose needs, I think, have been really overlooked and it's you know work that engages with the experiences of trans women and trans men living with HIV is really long overdue and thinking about your particular interest in intersectional feminism it's these cross cutting layers of mm. vulnerability it's so being a woman living with HIV being older being black African the majority of women living with HIV in the UK are black African so they may have issues in terms of immigration status and all of these things have a complex interplay and then if you imagine also on top of that being a trans woman you know there's a whole host of cross-cutting stigmas at play there which can really um, make the experience challenging but also and one thing that I probably haven't brought out is that in that there's also amazing resilience and people are thriving with HIV despite these difficulties and that's something to really underline so what can we do as allies Hmm. with this you
2: know women who are living with HIV and going through the menopause and also to your research
1: how can we support that so as allies what can we all do I think it's to be aware that the face of HIV in the 21st century is not just white gay men it's much more diverse than that and to remember that women live with HIV as well here in the UK and that their experience and their needs are going to be different and to seek out opportunities to talk to women living with HIV to learn from them they have tremendous expertise so start that conversation you may feel that it's difficult but actually you'll grow from that. So what are you currently working on
2: how can we support you how can our listeners support you find
1: you learn about the work that you're doing I guess the really exciting thing that we have coming up is we're launching our Prime Study Report. So this is just really bringing together all our findings on menopause and HIV, and it's really accessible. We have a very active Twitter account, which is at Prime UCL. So yeah, just follow us and see what we're doing. There's lots and lots of exciting stuff that we're going to be publishing over the next few years. And the other thing, really, again, is to flag up the Terence Higgins Trust Sophia Forum report. My disclaimer is I was on the steering group, but I didn't write the report. This was, as I said, really led by women living with HIV. And, um, yeah, I think if, if you've been interested in anything that I've been saying and you want to find out more about women living with HIV in the UK now, I'd, I'd just point you to that. It's an amazing resource.
2: That was Shima talking to us about researching women living with HIV and experiencing menopause, which are two huge taboos that don't get talked about enough. Next, we hear from Michael.
3: Hi, I'm Michael and I'm 76 years old, have been living with HIV for 30 years, now retired, living a fairly quiet life in uh, a Suffolk town, and I suppose I've led a pretty interesting life.
2: Can you please take us back to the beginning, maybe about the time, you know, 30 years ago, when you may have been first diagnosed?
3: It was uh, all kicked off sort of late in 1986. I had a partner of nearly 18 years, and he became quite ill. We were up here in our little sort of weekend cottage, which is now my home and he was taken quite ill. He'd uh, lost a lot of weight and had lesions on his back, and he was very ill. It was Christmas, and two days after Christmas, a friend of a friend that was here for the weekend, for the Christmas weekend, he was a doctor and came and examined Brian and confirmed that he had symptomatic AIDS and needed to be in hospital. So I rushed him down to London, got him into the Middlesex Hospital, where they treated him immediately, and then they asked me if I'd been tested, to which I said no, and surely it's a foregone closure. They told me, not really, but um, you'd better be tested anyway, which I was, and it turned out that I was HIV-positive. I didn't think much of it because I was more concerned about uh, Brian's welfare, which then carried on more or less every day because he was in hospital for several weeks, came home for a short time. It was a dreadful winter that year, I remember. It was absolutely awful. And I was spending my time getting up, going to work, going to the hospital, back home, trying to sleep, trying to do a, a job, which uh, I was director of a magazine publishing company. And this went on until eventually, in the May of 1987, Brian passed away. I mean, he had the lot. He, he ended up with um, cyclomegalovirus, which attacks taxed the central nervous system. And that's more or less what killed him eventually and I carried on and uh, got back into a routine of work and so on and about three or four years later I was told I ought to start taking some medication and back then it was only AZT they gave me lots of information lots of it contradictory I didn't know which way to turn, whether to go for it or not. I wasn't um, ill or anything and wasn't showing any signs of being ill. And I happened to be on holiday in America and needed to go and see a doctor because I had thrush because I'd been taking antibiotics for a sore throat. And I explained all this to the doctor I saw in this tiny little medical center way up in Washington state. And he said to me, What have you decided? I said, I don't know. He said, Well, trust me, you guys are very fortunate because you get your medication and everything free over there. And my wife had a blood transfusion from which she was infected with AIDS and she's lying in the hospital bed across the road there dying of it. So you go for it. And that's what made me decide when I came home to go for the AZT. And that went on for, for several years. And I was still being treated at the Middlesex Hospital, the sexual health clinic there. And I eventually moved to Suffolk permanently. And my local GP suggested that I started attending the clinic at Ipswich Hospital, which I did. They had a new man there who'd been working with people in London and so on. And he was very genned up. And he immediately cut the dosage of the AZT that I was on and eventually when all the combination drugs and therapies became available he decided to put me on. I was taking lots of pills every day at certain times and that eventually was cut back to two pills a day which I'm on now. My checkups were every three months or so. That was cut down to every six months, which is as it stands now. And all my blood counts are good. My viral load is undetectable. So what I thought was a death sentence back in 1987 has given me virtually a longer life than I was expected to have. People tell me that I look very well and uh, the, the doctors all say, you're healthier than some men younger than you are. So I count my blessings.
2: That's so interesting and so lovely to hear and to know You know how you thought back in the 80s that it was a death sentence and I don't really know a lot about people living with HIV. I would have assumed that even still hearing that today, living with HIV is still a death sentence.
3: I think the, the stigma and the... St- scare comes in about being tested and i am constantly telling people it doesn't matter who they are have you been tested for hiv and they say well no, it's not not necessary i don't have it well they're wrong because there are lots of people walking around that have the virus and don't know it and won't know it until they get ill and then it's too late Mm -hmm. so i suggest Get tested. And you don't have to go to a clinic. You can call into the Terrence Higgins Trust.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance
1: for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden
3: Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. They'll send you a kit. You can do it at home. Takes a matter of minutes, and you'll know right away whether you're positive or negative. And just be safe as well.
2: Another thing that jumped out to me when you were chatting to us about when you were first diagnosed was how you essentially became a carer for your partner Brian at the time.
3: I wasn't a full carer, obviously, because he was in the hospital. But when he came home for a short period, he was really very sick and didn't get any better because they thought that he might. He was admitted to this new ward that was initiated at the Middlesex Hospital, the first one in the country, and he was told that Diana, Princess of Wales, was going to be inaugurating it. So he said, oh my God, I've got nothing to wear. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Brian was Welsh, and he was very particular, even in the state of health that he was in. So I rushed off to uh, CNAs in Oxford Street, and picked him up a an outfit of some sweats and he was fine and when she arrived and sat on his bed on this Thursday, I think, think what think it was, and she admired his teddy bear that somebody had bought him. And it was all over the papers the next day.
2: It's amazing because one of our other guests talked about how Princess Diana visiting patients living with HIV was one of the first times that people with HIV were seen to be touched.
3: She made it more aware that this myth that you can get HIV from touching somebody or kissing them or drinking out of the same cup or glass and so on was a load of nonsense. I did come across that myself a couple of times, and I put the person in their place well and truly. Mm -hmm. Whilst I was looking after Brian, I didn't think about myself. I was so concentrated on him. I thought nothing of myself and my position with HIV. And it wasn't until later on that it occurred to me that, oh, I've got HIV. But then I thought, well, do you know what? this bugger isn't going to kill me. And I just carried on as best I could and put it to the back of my mind. And now, as long as I just take my two pills every day at the right time, it doesn't affect my life in any way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And all of my family and friends are aware of my conditions and they're aware of my sexual preferences. It doesn't make any difference to them. I think they like me, I hope, for who I am and not what I am.
2: Did you ever feel any resentment towards Brian at all?
3: No. Uh, Why would I? We'd been together for 18 years. It was one of those things. And I wasn't the only one going through all this in the 80s. And I lost many friends. That was a hurtful thing. But, you know, we all lose friends, and you have to grieve, but you have to get over it. Otherwise, you might as well cut your throat.
2: It's amazing how much science has evolved from all of that conflicting advice you said you were given at the beginning to now only having to take two pills a day and it having no effect on your life in in general.
3: Well, absolutely. I mean, initially, I did have some side effects, sickness and diarrhoea, But with a bit of juggling, it all cut out. And I managed to get on with with what I was doing.
0: So can
2: you tell us a little bit then what it would have been like to live in the 1980s and to be living with HIV and, you know, to have that stigma, coupled with that stigma of being homosexual?
3: Yes. Well, bearing in mind that I came out in the 60s when homosexuality was still illegal and it was all sort of under undercover but i was never really afraid of admitting my sexuality in fact i didn't openly admit it to people i just let them find out and make up their own minds whether they wanted to remain friends or let me remain as an employee etc and it made no difference i suppose i may have been lucky i very rarely came over Anybody that derided me, shall we say. I tried to make it a normal way of life. And uh, I think people accepted me for the way I behave.
2: And so can you quickly define for us what the difference is between HIV and AIDS for the benefit of our listeners?
3: Ask me that. (laughs) Well, HIV is a virus which leaves your immune system weak and open to opportunistic diseases like a certain type of pneumonia or skin cancer, which is a killer, and various other illnesses. Whereas if you're treated, it suppresses that virus. Now, if you're not treated, you can become ill with one of these diseases. Although, again, if you're caught at an early stage and you're treated there's a possibility is that you will be cured however if you don't get treated you can become very ill it's a little bit like cancer if it's caught in time then the hopes are that it will go away or it can be kept in check and that really is the simple explanation i i actually had to um pick somebody up here in my town I heard that he was walking around telling people that I had AIDS. And I stopped him in the street and I said, do you know the difference between HIV and AIDS? And he was, "Uh, uh, 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 no. I said, well, you better find out because you're telling people I've got AIDS and I don't. I only have HIV positive and you you should know the difference. I, I haven't got AIDS and plus the fact I can't pass it on to anybody. This is why it's so important for youngsters, well, not just youngsters, even middle-aged people and older should get tested. I was told at my Ipswich clinic that I wasn't the oldest person with, with HIV on their books. There was a man that was, that's older than I am, but he hasn't had it as long. So it could be anybody
2: thinking back you know about 20 30 years ago is there anything that you kind of that you wish that you had known or that you wish would have been different
3: yes i wish we'd known there was this virus out there and that it could cause such havoc however i have to say we had a bloody good time (laughs) <laughs> you know, we were, we were living in a, a wild time in the 80s. What
2: can we do to be better allies to survivors living with HIV today, young and old, and anybody living with HIV?
3: Give them as much support as possible uh, and understanding and learn about the disease or the virus and what it can do and make sure that people are educated. And uh, I would like to be able to go to local schools, for instance, and talk to youngsters about HIV and AIDS and how important it is to always be safe with sex and to get tested.
2: Have you noticed any difference between, I guess, the way that society treats you as a younger man living with HIV and an older man living with HIV?
3: Well, to be honest with you, when I was younger, nobody even bothered to talk about it neither did i to any great extent because i seem to be living quite normally these days i'm constantly being told by people you look bloody well and you're a marvel you can't be 76 and with hiv but i say well here i am i'm the living proof
2: there was something recently where uh, Conchita worst they have HIV, and a former partner was threatening to tell everybody about it. And so that's why uh, Conchita Worst came out and said, listen, I uh, I live with HIV, everything's fine, but the reason I'm telling you this now is because my former partner was threatening to tell everyone. What do you think about that? Do, is that something that you, you hear about a lot, this threatening, this the stigma about it? I mean, you, you had the courage to correct that person in your local area who was saying something different.
3: I haven't come across it. But good for her or he, um, because it's blackmail. It's awful. It shouldn't be allowed. This business of taking somebody to court for passing the virus on because you haven't told them that you've got the virus. But I don't think that should be allowed. Yes, I think you should admit to any partner your condition. I, I do. But because my viral load is is undetectable, I can't pass the virus on. Not that I'm just about to go out and have sex with everybody I fancy.
2: Mm-hmm. And has it has it always been that way, or is this because of like the 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 medication that you're taking?
3: Oh, it's the medication wow. definitely. The advances in the drugs has been incredible and a rapid improvement over the years. Wow. One day we'll find a cure.
2: Is there anything that you're working on? right now that you would like to platform, that you would like to share with us or that we can point our listeners to to find out a bit more?
3: Not really. I I don't actively uh, go out and spread the word, so to speak. I can bring it up in conversation. Mm. I met somebody recently, my local young chap, and we were talking, and for some reason I got round to the fact that I was an elderly gentleman. Well, I, I use the word gentleman loosely, and that I'd had HIV for thirty years, and he was absolutely dumbstruck. It couldn't believe it, mm. and he said, "Bloody hell, you're incredible!" <laughs> yeah. I know I sound as though I'm keep on blowing my own trumpet, <laughs> but um, I think you're I, entitled I do to... believe in. Speaking the truth. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Just quickly, I wanted to ask about your support network and maybe what it's like to be a gay man from the 80s and maybe have, you know, quite a lot of your support network affected by this. You know, how many of your friends and your close ones were affected by HIV and AIDS?
3: I, I lost count. Absolutely lost count. I mean, it wasn't just here. It was in America, on in France. Italy, Germany, all over the world, I lost friends. Um, we all try to support one another in whatever way we could, just keeping in touch and so on.
2: Do you want to um, platform a little bit the Terence Higgins Trust, which is how we found you and, and were able to get in touch and the work that they do?
3: Yeah, absolutely, because my other the other part of the support system here, of course, was my clinic, Um, And THT, going back when Brian was ill and I contacted THT, they had this buddy system and they found a guy that lived fairly locally to us uh, who became a a buddy of both of us because it it isn't just the patient that needs some support. It's the partner and friends and family.
2: Would there have been, like, a sense of fear at the time?
3: I suppose there was. You might know the name Kenny Everett. He was a good friend of mine. And he died. And that was a great loss. Freddie Mercury. And all of those names came to light and it made the subject more public. And the more that people with names shall we say got involved the better and i think it seemed to ease the stigma amongst those of us that were more lowly
2: michael thank you so much for chatting Mm -hmm. to us Uh, we really appreciate it thank you so much for being so open and honest and for sharing you know some really personal stories we really appreciate it well
3: the more people do talk to me i suppose the more i like to spread the word and I'm always willing to talk about it I, I'm living proof that it is not a death sentence and I'm looking forward to a long and happy life yeah. Yeah. but I don't want to be 90 <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I have a 93 year old uncle who is a pain in the backside. (laughs) And um, I don't want to get like that.
2: Something tells me I don't think you could ever be a pain in the backside. Oh,
3: I'm glad to hear you.
2: (laughs) Thank you so (laughs) much. You tell
3: that to some of the boys I've been with.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much, Michael. Up next is Hosanna. My name is Hosanna.
4: I am an HIV activist. I'm a woman living with HIV. I'm a mother... I'm a grandmother.
2: I'm a wife. I'm a sister. So all these things encompass who I am. Could you tell us a little bit about your story? What happened when your, your husband was first diagnosed with HIV?
4: When he got the first diagnosis, he didn't tell me. He went and told his mother and his brother. And I didn't know until he got admitted into the hospital. And that really upset me because uh, I felt he was my husband. I should have known this best before anyone else. But the culture determined that I was an
2: outsider. It was really upset. So what happened after that? You, f- you found out because he had gone to the hospital. Um... Yes, he had gone to the hospital because uh,
4: when he went to the hospital... He had told me he was fine. So I had questions. Why, if he's fine, he's not getting better? So I went to his doctor, uh, the consultant, and I asked, I said, my husband said he's fine. Why is he now in hospital? And then the doctor told me that, I told your husband he was HIV positive. So he didn't actually tell me. His doctor told me. Mm. And I then said to the doctor, so what's going to happen? And he says, I gave your husband a prescription, which he didn't buy because he said he didn't have money. So I asked for another prescription. So I went and bought the drugs and took them to the hospital and when I got to the hospital he had another prescription which his brother and mother had bought for him and I said where did they get the money and then he said I gave them the money so in essence that's how I got to know and I said why didn't you tell me he said well I thought you would leave me, and I said, "Why would I leave you?" He says, "Well, I've got HIV, and who's going to stay with somebody with HIV?" And uh, from there, we just had—I just had to find a way
2: of looking after him. And then you—you you quite soon afterwards got diagnosed yourself, is that right? No, I, I at that point I was not
4: diagnosed. I—I I just decided. I'm going to look after this man. So in essence, I went into some sort of denial that I needed to look after him because if I knew my status, I think I wouldn't have been able to look after him. I wasn't sick. I didn't see the need to go and be tested. So he, for the next two years, I looked after him and I was okay. And then he died. And because I had no purpose at that point, I think I was tired. I started feeling sick. So I came to the UK like six months after he died. And that's when I had the courage to go and get tested. And I was diagnosed positive.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about how people respond to HIV in Zimbabwe? The time it happened for me, it was really bad. I think
4: the attitudes have changed because there's now treatment. People know when they are diagnosed, they can go on treatment and continue to live well. So the stigma is not as high as it used to be when I was when my husband was diagnosed because it was a death sentence at that point. And when it's a death sentence where you die after such painful experiences, you've lost weight, uh, you have got thrash, you've got TB, you've got all these things. People did not want to be associated with you. So... Each time I go home, I think it has really moved on because of the treatment.
2: And how does it compare to now being in the UK?
4: I would say stigma starts within the individual, isn't it? If you have self-stigma, then it's very difficult for you to navigate even within your own community because you are projecting stigma. But if you are able to deal with self stigma, then the other stigma that comes from out with does not affect you as much. That is my personal experience. So I've gotten to the stage uh, where I speak about my status. People either like me or hate me or talk about me behind my back, but it doesn't bother me Mm. because I'm quite comfortable in my own skin.
2: Did that did that take some working towards? I'm a woman who's not quiet and I'm
4: I'm quite feisty. So keeping secrets like that would have killed me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had to get to the stage where I speak about it because it was something that was affecting me daily and it took time to get to that level. I had to meet other women learn from other women, hear them speak. Initially I thought they were crazy, but as I got to be around them, I realized actually it was healthy for me to speak about my condition and to educate others and to be open about my status.
2: What's it like being a woman living with HIV in the UK today?
4: It's not easy. For some, they find it very difficult for me i'm able to navigate i'm able to speak about it but it just depends there are some places where you wouldn't even talk about it because people will start looking at you in a different way so i'll give you an example i was working as a support worker and i was just talking about hiv and how it has destroyed livelihoods in in Africa and this woman looked at me and said, Oh, Africans must sleep around a lot. <laughs> wow. And you know, I I just looked at it and I thought, Oh my God, people think like that. So this is where I'm coming from. So you just have to suss out the
2: situation and see and then you can talk about it. Can you tell us a bit about why you decided to start your your health and well being centre in Glasgow?
4: I decided to do this because when I got my diagnosis my journey was tenuous. Was it was arduous I didn't have anyone to speak to who speaks my language, who understood me, who understood You know, the nuances of my culture, and that made it very, very difficult for me because I'm defined by my culture. In my culture, I'm a woman. I'm a mother. I'm a grandmother. And then you are are in a foreign land. You are Hosanna. But all these things are not taken into consideration, and that really affects your well-being. And that's the reason, because I just wanted something where people can come and have to experience their own culture, individual culture, because we have people from Nigeria. I have got got Nigerian volunteers. We have people from Zimbabwe. I'm from Zimbabwe. We have the people from Malawi. We have Malawian people in the office. So for me, it was that diversity where people can speak their own language. And it makes you can relate. Because a lot of things in English, they get lost in translation. So if somebody says to me, "Ozana, you have HIV, it's different when someone tells me in my language.
2: Just thinking back a little bit to when your husband was first diagnosed, did you feel any resentment towards him? I mean, I'm assuming that he was the one that passed on HIV. I
4: don't. I, I mean, who knows? I was a divorcee. He was a divorcee. I would, and I've never said he gave it to me. Right, yeah. Because I had had my own sexual history, and he had his own. So when, when we married, we were ignorant about this whole thing and the next thing it came after after nine years of being married so i don't know he's not there to defend himself so i would never say he he gave it to me oh because you can have this virus for a long time and you don't know you have it how can i then say he gave it to me because i had never been tested before yeah and i don't think he had
2: what advice would you give to someone recently diagnosed with HIV today?
4: I would say it's the beginning of an, of an exciting life. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's, it's the beginning of an exciting life. You know, I keep telling people for, that if it was not for HIV, I wouldn't even be speaking to you, actually. So, mm. you see, HIV has opened this whole new world to me and it has made me a better person and it's just the beginning of something new in your life and you have to live with this virus for the rest of your life. People, you need to tell them that there's life after HIV. It's not the end. Understand the virus, understand how it affects your body and how the medication helps.
2: Can you tell us, are there any things um, that affect women specifically who are living with HIV?
4: Yes, a lot of things. I mean, if you are diagnosed as a young woman, you want to have children. And I'm talking of women from the African continent. Most of them want to have children. And so they're wondering, how am I going to have a child with this virus? And how am I going to have a relationship, you know, and not use condoms? Because, you know, this man, if he gets to know, he's going to leave me. I mean, I was scared. I would not see my my my, my children growing up. Now I'm at the stage where I'm having grandchildren. So well, that's fine. That's great. <laughs> hmm.
2: Amazing. Your your organisation is specifically for um, African women living with HIV uh, in and around Glasgow. I'm wondering what um, myself and Elena and our listeners can do to be better allies to the, to the people that you support directly. Mm-hmm.
4: You know, know, funding has been, there's been a lot of austerity measures, you know, we keep getting austerity measures and funding is getting less and less and less, but you know, we just keep, we, we keep fighting, fighting in our corner, it's not about making money, it's about changing lives, I am surprised when I see a young woman walking into my office and starts crying, that the clinic sent it to me, and she doesn't know what to do. And then six months down the line, she's walking into my office, all made up and looking fantastic, and telling me she met this man, and she doesn't know how to tell him how she's living. You know, she's living with HIV. And to me, that is success. That is success. <laughs> It's amazing.
2: Looking at your health and well-being initiative that you set up, you offer massage therapy and that's been proven yes, to be quite effective with people living with HIV. Can you tell us a little bit why massage therapy in particular is effective?
4: Touch, naturing. I've had people walk through the door and say, since I got my diagnosis, I don't get close to people. They Some use this word, which I find very crazy. I'm dirty. And I don't want people to know and I'm not close to people because they don't even know how HIV is transmitted. They've not understood so intimacy to them has never been on the radar since they are diagnosed. So when we give people massage in a a professional manner, we are giving that touch where people start feeling that they are actually important because somebody is touching them and giving them massage. They are not dirty because we are giving them massage. So that changes their perception. It reduces isolation. And there's the, there's the research has shown that part of massage is nurturing.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Um... We really really appreciate it. I feel like it's probably time to ask you just one final question, which is how we can find out more about your organization that you set up. I'm not sure how to pronounce the is it Hupenyu? You tell me. <laughs> Hupenyu. Hupenyu. Yeah. So so how Hupenu can pe- Hupenyu means life. Oh, fantastic. So how can we um, how can our listeners find out more about this organization you set up and support your work? They can
4: go to my website this is Project dot org and uh, if they want to, to donate we are connected to we have put a donation thing there and you
2: can, can donate and that was Hosanna explaining the impact of touch on people living with HIV and supporting communities thank you so much for joining us this month you've been listening to episode 22 of kicking the karaoke as ever, a big thank you to our three assistant producers who helped make this podcast episode a reality. That's Amelia Parker, Becky Malone and Emma Hallahan. Let us know what you thought. Please tweet us at kickcariarchy. You can Facebook us, Kicking the kickingthecariarchy, or you can drop us an email at kickingthecariarchy at gmail.com. Just to highlight a few fantastic HIV organisations that help make this podcast, thanks to the NAS Project, Terence Higgins Trust, the Sophia Forum, and the Hukwanyu Health and Wellbeing Centre in Glasgow. Fab. And also just a quick note, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes as it really helps us with our ranking on iTunes and getting it out there and getting us like funding and adverts and things like that. So, yeah, thank you. So, from your karaoke Smasher hosts, Elena and Sid...